I wonder how many of us have had to say in the last 24 hours the words, I'm sorry. Or we've heard the words from someone, I'm sorry. And then I wonder if that's the case, what that was followed up with, any kind of change. One of the common mistakes that people make is they confuse remorse with repentance. One is a feeling, the other is an action. And though remorse is part of repentance, it's not quite enough. To feel bad about something we've done is different than to do something about what we've done. It's like the man who wrote the letter to the IRS saying that he couldn't sleep since 1970 when he cheated on his income tax. And so he sent five $100 bills in the envelope with the letter. But at the end he said that if he still couldn't sleep any better that he would send the rest later on. (laughs) There was remorse in that. There certainly wasn't repentance. Most everyone feels bad about something they've done or things that they have done. But what's the rest that you have to send? What's the next step? Repentance is a word that is used about 40 times in the Bible. At its root, the word means a different mind. So we get the term to change your mind, to change your heart. That's what it means, to turn, to do a 180, we would say in modern vernacular is that we change our mind about what we've done, about who we are, about who God is. That's the idea of repentance, to change. It is that one word that changed my wife's relationship to God early on. See, she read this tract that said that she should ask God to come into her life. And so she thought, okay, here's my life. I don't do anything. All I do is add God to it. He's another additive, another ingredient I put in my life. I've got everything else plus God. And so that's what she thought salvation was. And she was wrong. And one day during a church service, as she was listening to the message, it was Chuck Smith in Costa Mesa, California. She was listening, but she felt empty inside. And so after the service, she walked to the prayer room, and one of the pastors, as she poured out her heart, said to her, Have you repented? And she said, have I what? Repented. She goes, what does that mean? And so he explained that it's not just saying yes to God. Part of it is you say no to things while you say yes to God. It's a turning from and it's a turning toward God. Well, Jonah chapter 3 is before us. And this third chapter, beginning in verse 5, is the classic story of repentance. So I've entitled the message, The Anatomy of Repentance. There are five components that shows us how repentance works. In fact, Jonah is the book still read in Jewish synagogues today, every Yom Kippur. For the afternoon service, the Torah reading includes the book of Jonah because they say, this is the definitive act of repentance This is how a person should get right with God. Verse 5, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe 
and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and the nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Dramatic change for an entire city to do. Question, was this dramatic change out of character with the Ninevites? Absolutely. Remember that the Ninevites had a reputation. They were sort of like ancient gang members. We talked about their practices last time. They would tear tongues and lips off of people, skin people, hanging their skin on the walls of the city of Nineveh. All sorts of wicked, violent practices. And yet the whole city here repents. And you should know that there is evidence that Jonah went to Nineveh and was esteemed for his message. If you were to go to modern-day Nineveh, in the modern settlement of Mosul, which is about 150 miles northwest of Baghdad, Iraq, you would find the mound where Nineveh stood. And there is a large mound they call still Nebi Yunus, named after the prophet Jonah, whom they say is entombed at that spot. And the hieroglyphics that come to us from that period depict many of them. A man being spit out of a fish going to Nineveh with a message. So it's well documented in their history. And As you read this, especially verse 10, this is so like God to do. This is right up God's alley. Find a people group that are like the worst and bless them. Take something confused and broken and make something beautiful and harmonic out of it. God does that with people, individuals, and here an entire city. He did it with Johnny Newton, one of my favorite stories. Young Johnny Newton in the 1700s raised with Scripture. His mother taught him from a very tender age until she died when he was seven years old. He was raised by relatives. He, his heart's desire was to go sail the oceans. So when he came of age, he became a seaman in the British Navy. But he went AWOL, got on a ship, went to Africa, got involved in Portuguese, Portuguese slave trading, He was an alcoholic. He wrote in his memoirs that he wanted to fill his full of sin, live in sin, and live it to the full. He had a reputation that he could swear, he could cuss for two hours without repeating himself. One day, being drunk, a captain, because he was mouthing off, hit him and he fell overboard, almost drowned in the ocean. He was picked up by another boat, taken back to England, and after all of that time sowing his wild oats, back in England he committed his life to Christ, remembering what his mother taught him. He became a chaplain to the British Parliament, a statesman known throughout his country, and he even wrote a great song that we still sing, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound 
that saved a wretch like me. He was writing of himself. And the Ninevites, that could be their theme song. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved wretches like us. They knew they were, and there was genuine repentance. I said there were five components, and the first one is found in the fourth verse, even though we began with the fifth. I draw your attention back to the fourth, because the prerequisite of repentance is having an open ear. Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Repentance germinates. It begins to grow when somebody listening to the Word of God does so with open ears, is open and receptive. Paul said, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So Jonah entered and preached, but they stood long enough to listen to what he was preaching. They had an open heart and they had open ears. And the whole city listened and the whole city repented. And you might say, now come on, are we to believe that this entire greater metro Nineveh, these four convergent cities on the ancient Tigris River, all of them without exception, did this, as the scripture says? Yes, as outlandish as it seems, they did. First, because the scripture says so, but let me offer a few reasons in line with this. First of all, it's reasonable to think that when Jonah preached his message, he did more than just repeat a phrase. Although it says he said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, that was the heart of his message, that's what he said. It's reasonable to think that as he entered the city and he gave out this message, the people would ask natural questions. Who are you? What authority do you have? What God sent you? Tell us your story. And can't you just see Jonah there saying things like, you know, I've always hated you guys. And I'm not really thrilled about being here now, but I've learned to obey God. And Let me tell you how I got here. Second... Jesus spoke of the sign of Jonah. Do you remember that? Ever wonder what he meant by that? No sign shall be given this generation, said Jesus, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth. Jonah, Jesus said, was a sign. Not just spoke a message, he was a sign. How could Jonah be a sign to a city? Well, most obviously, the way he looked, right? As we mentioned last week, comes into the city as albino man, Casper the friendly ghost, bleached white from the gastric juices of the whale. Just walking in town, they would have stopped. And then as he told the story about this fish, I bet they just sort of dropped everything. I I did a little research this week and found that one of the principal gods of the Assyrians in Nineveh was the worship of the god Dagon. Dagon was called the fish god, the god over the seas. He's depicted, and he was depicted by the Philistines, but it started here in Assyria, as having a fish's body, but the upper part and the head of a man. So for a guy to say, I was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights, it's like saying, your god is greater than our god Dagon. You're here, you're living to tell about it. 
And then maybe also the the sailors who were aboard the ship that threw Jonah overboard and saw what happened. Maybe their story had circulated all the way to Nineveh by this point. So they'd heard about this guy. And when he comes walking into town, it's like, let's listen. Uh, There's a third reason. Some scholars suggest that there were a series of events prior to this that a severe plague struck Nineveh in the year 756 B.C. They say it's on record. After this severe plague came an eclipse of the sun, called a total eclipse, followed by another plague, so that the people of Nineveh were expecting great national catastrophe. So whatever it was, by the time Jonah hit the streets of Nineveh, they were primed, they were ready to listen. And that is where repentance begins. It's when people listen, give God a chance to speak, open up their hearts, Whenever we listen to the Word of God the right way, conviction happens. God starts getting nosy, poking around inside of our hearts, our consciences. The writer of Hebrews said, The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Or to put it in the New Living Translation, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires, it exposes us for what we really are. There's a lesson in that for us. Whenever we open this book or we sit down to come to church and listen to a Bible study, the first step is we ourselves should be open. Let it penetrate. Expose your life to God in the light of Scripture. Don't deflect. We become masters of deflection. We become masters at hearing a message and thinking, I know somebody who could use this tape. Or nudging the person next to us as if to say, this be for you, buddy. Open up your heart. may hurt a bit because the Holy Spirit may poke and nudge your own life. That's where it begins. That's where change begins. A.W. Tozer was right when he said, until a man has gotten into trouble with his heart, he's not likely to get out of trouble with his God. God has to do work. begins inside. Next, look at verse 5. Second component of repentance is the partner of repentance, which is a believing heart. And so the people of Nineveh believed God. Repentance and faith always go together. You could look at them as Siamese twins of salvation. The first message Jesus ever gave, at least ever recorded that he gave, was the message in which he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith always go together. When Paul recounted his own ministry going to the Jews and the Greeks, He said that he always proclaimed repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. They always go together. So you can't have one without the other, sort of like love and marriage. If there's repentance, there must be faith. Why? Because if repentance means to turn, then you've got to turn from something, but you've got to turn to something. It's not enough to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm stop 
going to stop that activity, what are you going to replace it with? You've got to turn to someone. So repentance is turning from sin, turning to Christ. Otherwise, you have a big void. And if you have a big void, eventually what will happen is you'll slide right back into what you say you left. Unless you replace it with the right stuff. That's full repentance. I heard about a testimony meeting, and some of you know what those are. You remember what they are. It's when people will get up during a meeting and say what they have done, and they confess their sins and sit down, and somebody else will stand up. Well, in this meeting, it got a little out of hand. One guy stood up and said, I've been smoking three packs of cigarettes every day, and I'm going to quit. He sat down. Another guy stood up. I've been drinking a six-pack of beer every day, and I'm going to quit. And he sat down. Another guy shot up and said, I've been cussing a whole lot, and I'm going to quit. And so one little old lady caught up in the excitement of this meeting, stood up, and she said, I haven't been doing anything, and I'm going to quit. <laughs> well, you've got to know what it is you're quitting and what it is you're replacing that with. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So if we're going to deny ourselves certain things, what are we going to replace it with? That is repentance. Now let me point this a little more directly at our own hearts for Christians, because it's easy to apply this to the unbeliever needing to turn from sin and turn to God. But let me say that repentance is something Christians from time to time also need to do. And that it has to be positive, not just negative, not just what I'm not going to do. If your spirituality consists only of what you don't do anymore, then you ain't very spiritual. For you to say, I don't smoke, and I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do, isn't enough. I would say, tell me, what is it exactly you do not just what you don't do. If your spirituality is known only for what you don't do, it's incomplete. We need to have faith. We need to have the pursuing of Christ. Um, there was a lady in the Midwest named Miss Jones, a spinster, oldest lady in her town. She died. It was brought to the attention of the newspaper editor. So we thought, well, I'd like to write some little quip in the newspaper speaking about her life and commemorating her at her death. The problem is, though he knew her, he couldn't think of anything she'd ever done noteworthy. So he went to visit the cemetery owner. He was in the process of writing a little quip for the tombstone. He had the same problem. He knew Miss Jones, couldn't think of anything to write. She hadn't done anything. So... Um, the newspaper editor thought, well, I've got to do something. But I'll tell you what, I'll find somebody else to do it. Tomorrow morning, the first person who walks in, the first editor who walks in, I'll assign them with the job. Eight o'clock the next morning, the first person in the building after the editor was the sports editor. So he said, you have the job. What job? And he explained about Miss Jones. You have to write something to commemorate her that will go not only in the newspaper but on the tombstone. So it is said that if you walk through a certain cemetery in the Midwest and look at a certain tombstone to this day, are these words, Here lies the bones of Nancy Jones. For her life it held no terrors. She lived an old maid. She died an old maid. No hits, no runs, 
no errors. Hey, let's not just be known for what we don't do. Let's have a few hits and runs in our lives. Faith accompanied with repentance. Third thing to look at in our text in verse 5 is the participation of repentance. Who was involved? And it tells us right off the bat, so the people of Nineveh. You want to know who the people are? You keep on going. They believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth, notice, from the greatest to the least. Stop right there. Everyone, and they're delineated from the upper echelon of society, the who's who down to the who's not, all of them, from the least to the greatest, believed. They participated in this repentance. Repentance and faith, i.e. salvation, is not just for one class of people. It's not just, well, those poor people in that poor country, boy, they need the gospel. You know what? Everybody does. Everybody does. It's for every class. It's not for one group of people. When the angel came to visit the shepherds outside of Bethlehem to proclaim that Jesus was born, the message the angel said was, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For to you this day is born in Bethlehem Christ the Lord. I say this and I point to this because there is a false assumption that Christianity somehow is a Western religion. And I've seen specials on television. We have Eastern religions and then we have Christianity, this Western religion. Anybody who says that doesn't know their history. It started in the East, did it not? It started in the Middle East and it spread throughout the region. And before it ever came to America, it went to India and Asia. But often accompanied with that Christianity is a Western religion comes this thought, well, um, that's your way to God. That's a way to God. But you have no right to go on a mission of evangelism. You have no right to impose your Western ideals, values, and culture on another society. This is the age of tolerance where evangelism is not tolerated. The ex-musician who's now passed away, Frank Zappa said, quote, missionary evangelism is the height of cultural arrogance. To go to somebody else's country and attempt through trickery, food, or medical treatment to capture souls for Jesus presumes that the guy with the travel budget and the hypodermic needle has a spiritual edge over the native that he's going to save. That is politically correct. It happens to be eternally wrong. Jesus said, for God so loved the world, not just the West, or not just the poor, or not just the rich, but the, the great, greatest to the least. God's plan encompasses the globe, the world. The family business is a worldwide vision. So he told his disciples, you go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creation. After the resurrection... It was said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Why? Why? Well, it's sort of like the treatment for any disease, right? I mean, if you want to treat a lung disorder uh, or a heart disorder or Hansen's disease or whatever it is, the optimal approach to treatment is the same, whether you live in America or Mexico or Africa. 
doesn't matter where you live. You need to be treated with certain medicines no matter where you are geographically to get healed. And there is only one cure to sin. It's universally the same. It applies whether you're in a Muslim culture or a Hindu culture or a Buddhist culture or a Western culture. It's for the great. It's for the least. It's for everyone. God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish. And this city did. Now let's look at the proof of repentance. The people believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. What a picture. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, now here's the state of the union. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God, yes. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? The proof of repentance is an obedient life. The test of conversion is what happens after it. You know, it's one thing to get emotional, you get moved by a message. They, they could have stood around Nineveh all day weeping and emotional because they were touched by what Jonah had to say. And I bet many of them were. But that wasn't enough. To just be emotionally moved by Jonah's message wasn't enough. It has to be followed up with something. As somebody once said, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. One of the saddest stories I ever read was about Mahatma Gandhi, who once considered Christianity. He was raised a Hindu. Uh, he studied, you know, in the British schools. And he had been reading the Gospels. And while he was reading the Gospels, he thought, you know what? Jesus really has something here. And I think if there's one answer for the caste problem in India, it would be the teachings of Christ, Christianity. So he decided he would go to church and find a minister and talk over Christian doctrine and convert to Christianity. So he went to church one Sunday, but he was met at the door. And they told him, why don't you go and worship with your own kind? He was not allowed in that upper middle class church. And so he walked away disappointed, and this is what he wrote in his diary. He said, if Christians have a caste system among themselves, then I might as well stay a Hindu. And he did. So the test of conversion is what happens after conversion. What happened to the Ninevites? Two things, one in their attitude and one in their action. First of all, humility. They covered themselves with sackcloth, sat in ashes. The king did the same thing. This is the evidence of humility. They are admitting, I'm not perfect, I have a need. Sackcloth is dark, coarse wool used to make Bedouin tents or sacks over in that part of the world. Very itchy. You wouldn't wear it next to the skin. Usually you'd have a liner underneath it. But if you were mourning somebody's death or you were making some radical statement of, of mourning, you'd wear it next to the skin. 
Then it says that they sat on ashes, also the king. And ashes shows extreme misery, extreme degradation. Now, the modern Western reader would read this and say, this just shows they have low self-esteem, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Well, not to them. It shows that they have not self-esteem, but humility, willing to admit that they have a need. Part of salvation is remorse over my sin. Godly sorrow, said Paul, works repentance. Chuck Colson, some of you remember him. He wrote the book Born Again. He was on the cabinet of President Richard Nixon. He now heads up prison fellowship. Chuck Colson said that one of the the peculiar things about Nixon's personality is that Nixon never admitted he was wrong. For a long time, even he said when he had a cold and he was sneezing and sniffling and runny nose and he'd never admit, no, I'm fine. Well, the Ninevites admitted it. Sackcloth, ashes. Then there's an action here. It says that the king arose. And he laid down his robe. He laid them aside, covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he makes this public declaration, this decree. Uh, Just for some of you history buffs, we don't know exactly who this king is, but we could get pretty close at identifying him because we know that Jonah was a prophet during the time of Jeroboam II, the king of Israel. And that the kings during that time were Shalmaneser IV or Adad Nirari III or another guy by the name of Ashur Dan III. One of these three kings were probably uh, the king that is mentioned here. But here's a guy who makes an overt statement. He's not embarrassed to stand up in front of the nation, take off his royal robes, put on this coarse hair, and sit in ashes. And then make a proclamation, a state of the union, that this should not only happen to me, but everybody in the kingdom, even your pets, horses, animals, small rodents, everything. Don't let them eat or drink anything. Now, if you're wondering at that, because some people read the text and go, oh, come on, you know, animals are involved in this. It was a common practice whenever there was national mourning to involve animals. It goes back to the time of the Persians, even in modern funerals. It's not unusual, funerals of royalty, to see horses draped in black. Or John F. Kennedy's funeral, the riderless horse, animals were brought into it. This is a proclamation of the king. My point is this. The king changed. And the king used his influence to change other people. Oh, how great it would be if rulers of nations, if political figures would admit they were wrong when they were wrong and have a repentance before the people, come clean, how far that would go. And then he says in verse 8, cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence, notice that, that is in his hand. Why do you mention violence? That's the one thing they were known for, right? I don't know, let's see, cutting out tongues and lips and skinning people, that's violent. And he knew it. And he's willing to admit the one thing that we're marked for is the one thing we need to turn away from. This is all this overt action of repentance. I I was reading that Patrick Reynolds has joined the American Lung Association's fight, the anti-smoking campaign. And you might say, big deal, who's Patrick Reynolds? He happens to be the grandson of 
R.J. Reynolds, the tobacco magnate. He said, I'm doing this to make up for all the damage my family has done. And so the king of Nineveh would rise up, take off his robe, sit in ashes and say, this is for all the damage that my nation has done. We should all change. Now let's personalize that. We influence people. We may not be a king of Nineveh. We may not be a politician. But all of us have a sphere of influence. We have neighbors. We have contacts. We can talk to them. We can witness to them. We can vote. That's influential. We can influence people for the kingdom of God, for the right cause. You can invite people to church. That's influence. Have them hear the gospel. So, let's review. The prerequisite for repentance, an open ear. The partner of repentance, a believing heart, faith. The participants of repentance, a hurting world, from the least to the greatest. The proof of repentance, an obedience life. And finally, fifth, we come to the power of repentance. That's verse 10. This is the forgiven soul. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them. He did not do it. That is, God mercifully withheld what he was about to bring on them. This was conditional judgment. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is, if you keep going on this track. The king popped a clue. He said, wait a minute. Let's turn from our violence. It could be that this God is merciful. He was merciful to albino man. Maybe if we turn, he'll be merciful to us. And so they did, and so God did. You know why? God doesn't like judgment. He loves mercy. That's his character. That's his nature. Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should what? Come to repentance. That's the heart of God. And when anyone ever does come to repentance, they find forgiveness, mercy. It's powerful. It's positive. So next time you hear the word repentance, don't don't think of it as negative. But ah, yes, refreshing. There's a story that comes to us out of Spain. A father and his teenage son were always arguing. Sounds very American, doesn't it? They argued day after day, and finally the arguments got so bad, they had such a blowout that young Paco decided to run away from home. Didn't come back that night, didn't come back the next day, was gone all week. His father was on a desperate search for Paco, didn't find him. And so in one last-ditch effort to find his son, he took out an ad in the Madrid paper that said, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day at 12 noon, in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos, (laughs) all wanting forgiveness from their fathers. It's common among us, isn't it? to want to get right in our relationships. And if there's anything that is in the way between you and your God, then repentance is in order. So are you willing to lay down your royal robes of pride, position, don't you know who I am? And humble yourself and believe whether you're great or least Commit your life to God. There's power in that. There's a forgiven soul. Let's pray. Father, we pray for that on a couple different levels.
First of all, we pray as your church that you'd forgive us for our sins, cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We have done things that on certain occasions have sent the wrong message out to people and maybe have hindered others from coming to you. Jonah even did that. You gave him another chance. He had to repent, and so did the people of Nineveh. Then, Father, we pray for people who have done many things, but they've come short of a personal turning to Jesus Christ, of saying no and turning in repentance from sin to you. Lord, they, like so many Pacos, would like to know that there is a Father in heaven who holds nothing against them, who forgives them. And you're willing to do that. But you said we must be willing to receive your Son. That is the condition. I pray, Lord, that in humility, those who have not done that would become your children this morning. Bring that sweet conviction upon hearts right now, Lord.